All right. Thank you guys uh, so much for coming. Welcome to uh, P&T Knitwear. Um, it is really exciting uh, to have someone like Lena Khan, who is, I, you know, blazing a trail in a lot of different ways, um, and uh, just incredibly grateful that she came to talk to us. A um, few things to mention. One is we are recording this also for our podcast called Firewall. It'll come out tomorrow, so... If you say anything really loud, you'll get captured in the background, so that could be good or bad, depending on how you see it. Um, I'm going to ask Lena questions for about half an hour. We're going to turn over to the audience. I think you've got like a hard stop at 7.15, so uh, we will use the time as wisely as we can. So anyway, thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I think this is the first time I've done an event at a bookstore, so uh, FTC's yeah. cred, I think, is uh, street cred is, is yeah, uh, yeah, we're, we're breaking new ground here. <laughs> well, so like, you know, I have to say, I was surprised at the number of people who wanted to come to this and like the interest in it. And so like clearly people are watching what you're doing. So from your perspective, um, like why does the FTC matter? So the FTC has been around since 1914. Uh, this was an agency that was created, you know, during the first Gilded Age against the backdrop of the robber barons and, you know, the sugar trust, the meat trust. Uh, and Congress created the agency because it worried about the concentration of economic power that they believed was inhibiting democracy, inhibiting liberty, uh, making it difficult for people to go out and compete on the merits of their products and services. And they thought that uh, an economy where you had fair competition uh, was really central to our democracy. That in the same way that we needed to prevent concentration of power in our political sphere, that Congress believed we also needed to present, prevent concentration of economic power in our commercial sphere in order to fully have robust, thriving democracy and, and liberty. So that's really the backdrop of the agency. Uh, since then, you know, our authorities have been expanded to include consumer protection. Uh, and today, we're really on the front lines of a lot of the biggest challenges that are people are facing in their day-to-day -day lives, be it uh, unaffordable drug prices, uh, be it, you know, infant formula shortages, be it, you know, huge data security hacks. Um, the FTC is really on, in the trenches on, on protecting Americans from unlawful business practices. And so uh, it's an exciting time. So you guys cover, as you just mentioned, kind of a really wide variety of, of industries. Tech seems to capture the lion's share of attention of the work that you're doing. And obviously, um, the potential breaking up of really big tech is something that people, I think, if, if you ask people Lena Khan, that's kind of what they say, right? You know, she's going to break up Google or Apple or whatever it is. Um, and there's a little bit, I think we actually had lunch today with a, a bunch of VCs, and I think you even saw it in the room a little bit, which is even though early stage tech and Google have as much in common as like this microphone and this book does, um, there's sort of this like defensive like, oh, we have to protect tech from regulation. But, you know, I, I would argue, and the reason that I've kind of been publicly supportive is as an early stage investor, I, I can't invest in a potential competitor to Google or Meta or Apple because they're just going to squash them and they have too much monopolistic power to prevent it. So this seems like there's almost this cognitive dissonance where I would argue that the work that you guys are doing is really necessary to make the economy and innovation and business succeed once these big companies eventually get stagnant like they all do. Um, and yet sort of the narrative is kind of the opposite of it. So one is, um, What's the reality of all of it? Why are you doing it? And then two, um, why do you think people don't understand it properly? So look, one reason why Congress decided that you know they want our economy to be competitive and dynamic is because 
there's no monopoly on good ideas, right? We really want an economy and markets where if somebody has a good idea, they're able to secure financing for it. You want them to be able to bring it to market and really compete on the merits. And so you want their success to be based on whether the product or service is popular, whether it's good for consumers, and not on whether they're getting the right permission from the existing giants or whether the existing giants do or don't feel threatened by them. And so that's really what our work is about. Uh, we're trying to enforce fair competition laws, antitrust laws that are trying to crack down on you know, anti-competitive practices like coercion and illegal mergers that are stifling competition and really preventing those types of innovative ideas from coming to the market. And I think you know, business dynamism really suffers uh, when you see those types of anti-competitive practices. And, and that's what we're really trying to push back against. And are, are we in a new, unprecedented era of really like a handful of incredibly powerful companies with these trillion dollar valuations? Or ultimately, do we see this every generation and it just it happens to now be tech platforms as opposed to railroads or oil companies, whatever? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and look, I think in some ways the railroads really set the foundations for the types of dynamics that we're seeing today where you had this phenomenal technology that was suddenly connecting the country, uh, you know, enabling farmers in New York to suddenly get their goods all the way to California. But you also had a lot of con consolidation so that these amazing technologies were now controlled by a relatively few number of entities. And that meant that those entities could really pick winners and losers, right? They could decide who got access to the railroad, who didn't. Uh, their decisions were sometimes you know, discriminatory based on uh, who was cutting them special favors, who didn't threaten them into their other business lines. And Congress decided that you know, this was unfair. Uh, it was really distorting the economy. Uh, it was creating a situation where who was succeeding and who was losing was not based on how good their ideas were, how good their products were. Um, and I think similarly today, you know, in digital markets, we see gatekeepers that are controlling access to key markets. Um, and I think similarly, we hear a lot of concerns from small businesses, from entrepreneurs, from merchants that are concerned that you know their livelihood and, and their ability to succeed in the market is not a function of whether consumers like their products. It's a function of whether the existing giants are going to give them access. And I think that's where you start seeing some of those distortions. Um. So now as we move into a world of, of Web3, and then you know, we'll get into AI, um, do those distortions become even sort of more critical and problematic? Or is, is it, again, just always a kind of thing where any time that a couple of companies have a stranglehold on a really critical good, um, you've got to sort of at least look at it, if not act on it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there are key analogies, but there are also key differences, right? I mean, I think in digital markets, we've seen how um, you know, there are network externalities, but there are also huge reinforcing advantages to data, right? That means that whoever gets an early head start and is able to lock in their dominance, there's a huge amount of data that's going to keep feeding into them and, and allow them to expand into other lines of business. Um, what that means is that, you know, from an enforcement perspective, we need to be very vigilant early. Um, I think there was a sense in the early 2000s that these digital markets are so fast moving. And so if anything, enforcers and regulators really need to step back and allow the market to just do what it's going to do. Because even if you were ever to have monopoly power, there was always going to be so much entry and dynamism that that monopoly power would be dissipated away. And I think what we've seen, in fact, is the exact opposite. 
um, that in digital markets in particular, you have these dynamics that can lead markets to tip, that can lead to lock-in. And so if anything, you need to be especially vigilant on the front end uh, because it's much more difficult to, to solve these problems after you've you know, had illegal mergers or anti-competitive practices that have gone unaddressed for a long time. All right, so, so let's jump into the thing that I think most people here actually definitely want to hear about, which is AI. So you had an op-ed in the Times last week, two weeks ago, something like that, kind of laying out both, you're, I think kind of in some ways the first intellectual framework for how to think about regulating AI was kind of how I read the piece. Um, so give us the strokes of like, let's, I'm gonna make you king now, right? So you're not just the FTC chair, but like you control Congress, the White House, everything. How should we regulate AI? So the goal of the article was to really clarify a misconception. Um, and I think that misconception is that here's AI, it's this new thing, and it's really emerging in this regulatory vacuum, right? I think a lot of the statements that we see from some of the executives also try to ratify this idea. This is new, there are no rules, Congress, please create some rules. And what we thought it was really important to do was to clarify that hey, there are actually all these existing rules on the books that are all gonna apply, right? There's no AI exemption from dis laws prohibiting discrimination. There's no AI exemption from laws prohibiting collusion. And so it was really an effort to, to make clear that just because businesses may be using these tools and introducing them, uh, they need to make sure that they're already complying with the existing laws on the books. I think we already see a lot of risks relating to how these tools can be used to turbocharge fraud and scams, which you know, it might seem less exciting than some of the dystopian visions we hear about, but in terms of the very real dangers here and now, uh, it's off the charts, right? I mean, these are tools that are basically enabling scammers and fraudsters to disseminate fake content uh, much more cheaply, much more quickly, and on a much wider scale. And so we've already heard stories about how, you know, bad actors can use voice cloning tools to uh, make calls, pretend to be somebody's family member in distress using a very convincing simulation and scam people out of thousands of dollars, right? And so those types of urgent, immediate, here and now type harms are the ones that we at the FTC are most concerned about. Um, I think on the competition side, there are a whole set of really interesting questions to be asked around, you know, what is the stack? of AI, what are the different inputs, right? So you have compute, you have cloud, you have data, you have the models layer, you have the applications layer. Uh, which of those layers are, are ones where we are likely to see you know, significant benefits to scale and some of the existing giants having an advantage? And how do we make sure that they're not using that advantage to squash out competition and say, you know, certain types of applications or models? So I think that's where we need to be quite vigilant. So one way to interpret what you just said is it was almost a hedge against uh, the risk of government not really acting. You're saying, look, even if there's no new kind of regulatory framework, the tools already exist to do our job. Um, when I talk to founders who are in the AI space, they all believe that regulation is coming, and yet we haven't regulated internet 2.0 yet, right? There's no GDPR in the US. Section 230 is somehow still alive and well. So how confident are you um, that Congress or states or others will really act on this? And how much do you think it's just gonna need to be like, hey, the existing tools are here, that's what you have to rely on? I mean, at the FTC, we're really focused on using our existing tools, uh, especially when we see the types of harms that are clearly in our jurisdiction. Um, you know, over the last decade, uh, we've seen a lot of really interesting activity at the state level. 
uh, where we've seen you know state level privacy laws. We've also seen a whole level, a uh, whole set of initiatives to limit or in some cases ban the use of facial recognition technology. Um, and so I think that state level activity will continue to be really important at the local level where some of this stuff can get done, uh, especially as these tools get more and more incorporated into you know how key decisions are being made about who's getting access to you know health services, who's getting access to housing. Um, as this stuff becomes more embedded and just how daily decisions are being made. I think they invite and merit a lot of scrutiny. Um, I think we've already seen how, you know, there's an enormous amount of data being fed into these machines and there are very few checks on, on what type of information is being fed. And so if that information is riddled with errors or riddled with bias, you know, you can see enormously consequential decisions for people's lives being made, potentially based on erroneous information, right? There's already reporting around how people are being sent to jail based on some of this information. So I, I think that those, the, the problems and concerns are quite urgent. And I think, you know, enforcers, be it at the state level or, or national level are gonna be acting. So. On antitrust, you seem to have the one issue that actually allows both parties to work together, right? Like remarkably, bills move, they come out of committee, they get on the floor, you've got bipartisan support. So is it that you have sort of just the unicorn issue or are there things that you've seen as obviously you're talking to members and everything else that happens? Are there lessons from that that we could apply to other issues so that we can get a little more bipartisan cooperation on other stuff? It's an interesting question. I mean, I do think that antitrust and anti-monopoly is um, somewhat unique, perhaps, because it really stems from a concern about concentration of power, right? And how excessive concentration of power can really threaten core fundamental democratic values, can threaten core liberties. Um, and I think, you know, traditionally uh, among conservatives, we've seen a lot of concern about concentration of state power. Um, but I think there's a growing recognition that when you have concentration of private power among entities that are making enormously consequential decisions about who gets to be heard in the public sphere, you know, that type of private power can start functioning like government power in some ways. And so I think the recognition uh, around that is really what's facilitating this type of bipartisan coalition, uh, which I think is enormously exciting. I, th I do think we see similar types of um, bipartisan concern around uh, data privacy issues, uh, you know, endless surveillance of, of people, the fact that you have to surrender, uh, you know, your key core sensitive data in order to use apps and services that are increasingly essential for navigating day-to-day -day life. Uh, similarly, you know, we've traditionally seen concerns uh, among conservatives about, you know, the surveillance state, uh, the more you see fish, how private surveillance and public surveillance can kind of go hand in hand. I think you see similar coalitions. Uh, concern around kids' privacy in particular is an area where I think we've seen a lot of legislative activity as well. So Washington, you know, I think we have this, not we, all of America, right? If you said, what's Washington? A mess would be just basically the, the common answer. Now that you're in there under the hood and sort of dealing with people both in public but also in private, I mean, how bad is it and how much is the stereotype, like the reality of it and how much is it just sort of the press sort of making things, you know, more exciting than they are? <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, at, at the FTC, this is an agency that's been around for 100 plus years. You know, there are a lot of challenges, uh, one of which is just resources. Uh, so the FTC today is smaller than it was in the late 1970s. 
Um, meanwhile, our economy has grown, you know, six to eight times as much. And so one of the realities for us that was really eye-opening for me when I got in there was just we're having to do triage every day all the time, basically, where it's like we see activity here, we see problematic activity there, and just how you prioritize and how you determine where to actually be putting resources uh, is something we're having to just decide every day, day in, day out, uh, in really tough ways. I mean, I think there are a lot of problematic business practices that we see that we wish we had more resources to be able to address. Um, Non-compete. So you guys have moved some pretty substantial rules forward, really that I think would, would change the way that non-competes are done or maybe that they exist at all. What'd you do, why'd you do it, and what's the path ahead for it? So I'm really excited about this work. Um, in January, the FTC proposed a rule that would eliminate the use of non-competes in employment contracts. Um, and we did this for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is, you know, there have been some states like, say, California, which now for many, many, many decades have rendered non-competes non-enforceable. Um, but in the last decade plus, we've actually seen more and more states take some action against non-competes, either to limit them or to prohibit them. And what's that, what that has done is basically created a natural experiment among states that allow researchers to really isolate the effects of non-competes, where they basically can compare what are the effects on local economies when you do have non-competes or where you don't have non-competes, uh, what is the effect on specific sectors. And so now there's actually a pretty robust set of empirical research showing that you know, non-competes uh, have an effect on, on lowering workers' wages, but they also have an effect on competition. Uh, they have an effect on innovation, where oftentimes, you know, the people who are best positioned to go uh, start up a new business are the, you know, people already working in one of these companies. And when they're locked into a non-compete, that can really inhibit new business formation and innovation. Uh, we've also just, frankly, seen a proliferation of, of how these non-compete clauses are being used. So they started in the boardroom, started with high-level executives, but they really have now spread across the economy, be it you know, janitors, security guards, fast food workers, journalists. Um, and I think there are you know, serious questions to be asked about whether they're being used in overly broad ways. Um, so that's you know, a proposed rule. Uh, we got 26,000 comments. Uh, we're currently going through those comments. We actually heard a lot from healthcare workers, uh, including physicians and nurses who are concerned that non-competes are also now you know, affecting the quality of care uh, because you know, healthcare workers are st stuck in their jobs more and more. So uh, we're looking carefully at those comments. are gonna determine you know, where we land and then hope to move forward with the finalized rule if we think the, the record uh, reflects that. So should non-competes, in your view, just not exist at all, or are there circumstances where it does make sense to have them? So these, this is one of the questions that we asked. Uh, in our proposed rule, we would have eliminated them in employment contracts. We would have allowed them in contracts where there is a sale of a business. Um, and one of the questions we asked was, you know, if this is overly broad, where should we instead allow non-competes to continue? What are those contexts, be it specific sectors? Is it a specific income level? If it is an income level, what is that level? Uh, we also ask questions around, um, you know, what are alternatives to non-competes that may be more appropriate? So one thing we hear is concerns about trade secrets or intellectual property where people will say, uh, you know, I, I don't wanna, uh, the reason I have a non-compete is because I don't want my employee to go share all these secrets with my competitor. 
you know, we do have trade secrets laws, we have non-disclosure agreements, and so one question we asked is, are these alternatives adequate and, you know, more appropriate because you're not also then locking in a worker and preventing them from moving? So those are some of the things we asked about. Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what we hear. And what's the time frame for the rule? So, you know, we're going through 26,000 comments. This is non-trivial. So we have a small but mighty team uh, doing that. Um, you know, we're going to, if we end up finalizing a rule, look to do that as, as soon as we can. Um, and then when you're doing this, I assume you're just anticipating kind of legal challenges to it and trying to construct the rules in ways that you think will survive the court. And then do you worry about sort of the ideology of wherever this is going to get filed ending up and then kind of taking your hard work and just decimating? <laughs> Look, we feel very confident that we have the legal authority. Uh, the FTC has previously promulgated a, an unfair method of competition rule. There is DC Circuit precedent uh, on the books saying we have this authority. So, you know, we feel confident uh, that we have this authority. Candidly, we wouldn't have spent the resource putting this rule together if we didn't think we did. Uh, you know, we don't have the luxury of just devoting resources to, you know, fantasy projects where we don't have authority. So we feel good about, uh, we, we feel good about that. If, if we end up facing a challenge in court, you know, we'll explain to the court why we think we have this authority. Um, and, you know, I, I do think non-competes is another area where we end up seeing bipartisan concern. Um, we ended up in our record, I believe, getting some comments from uh, folks concerned about religious liberties uh, who wanted to make sure that, you know, if an employee wants to quit uh, because they disagree with their employer's workplace policies, be it relating to vaccine mandates or whatever else there might be, uh, that you know they should they should be free to quit and, and free to quit in a way where they have other employment options. So again, I think this is an area where you can imagine some you know interesting bedfellows. So my 16-year-old daughter is a mega Taylor Swift fan. Um, <laughs> and when I told her we were doing this and I explained what the FTC was, um, her question is, you know, well, what's she going to do about the whole Ticketmaster mess? Um, and I should disclose I am a StubHub investor, so I'm slightly biased here. But still, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, so we definitely uh, heard from a lot of Swifties uh, recently around uh, <laughs> the Ticketmaster debacle. Um, look, so this was, you know, uh, this was uh, the merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation was one that went through uh, around a decade ago. Uh, there were concerns raised at that time about how this merger could be bad. Uh, one thing that was floated at the time was whether Ticketmaster would be able to use its control over ticketing to really coerce artists into using its venues. Uh, some of the reporting that we've seen since then, you know, suggests that some artists have faced this type of treatment. So, um, you know, this is something that is in the Justice Department's wheelhouse, uh, the antitrust division there. And so, uh, you know, they, they may be looking at it. And if they decide to do something, I'm sure there'll be some public interest and support. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, so you're really young for a position of, of this much influence and power. And What's, I mean, what's it like? I mean, do you basically kind of wake up sometimes, you're like, wait, why are they letting me do all of this? Or is it just one of those, like, someone's got to do it. I'm pretty good at this stuff. I'm just going to plow forward. I mean, kind of just, you know, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility for someone your age. Yeah, look, I mean, it's an enormous honor and, and privilege to be in this position at this time. And, you know, the fact that uh, this is just an incredibly important moment for the future of antitrust and the future of anti-monopoly is, is not lost on me. And I'm sure there's a part of me that's kind of just suspended processing all of it in real time. And just at the other end, we'll kind of be like, wow, that was pretty wild. But uh, for now, you know, we're just acting with a lot of urgency uh, to try to move things quickly, try to make sure that the problems that Americans are facing in their day-to-day -day lives are ones that we're acting quickly to address. 
All right, I think it's now time to open it up to the audience. Um, and so uh, Sam and Corey are gonna figure out how that happens. What do we do? And ho hopefully you will pass the mic to you or just repeat the question for the podcast. Sure. Do you hey, Alfred Ang, I know you had one. Are you here somewhere? Yeah, so in, you know, in recent cases like Meta and within um, the FTC has expressed a clear preference for building over buying and an FTC official um, you know, recently said one of the goals of the agency's uh, merger enforcement policy is to help steer venture-backed companies to IPOs rather than you know, acquisitions. Um, when reviewing acquisitions of startups, does the agency specifically include in its analysis the ability of a company to go public? And if so, how does it go about that analysis? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, for, for us as the FTC, this is not about us just making random policy determinations about how we want to see the world or how we want to see business. It's really the laws that Congress passed, right? And so Congress passed laws that say certain types of mergers are illegal. Uh, the courts have issued opinions saying that in certain cases, uh, organic growth is preferable to growth through acquisition. And so those are really just the rules on the books that we believe we have to follow. Um, you know, every merger case is, is different. Um, sometimes if we hear arguments from parties, for example, about how, um, you know, their only exit opportunity is this one acquisition by this one company, and yes, it happens to be their biggest rival, you know, those are instances in which we try to vet some of those claims and try to understand, well, what are alternative options? Are there other buyers that the company has engaged? Um, have they contemplated an IPO? So it really comes up in the context of the claims that the companies make to us rather than kind of a checklist that we go down. But if companies are making claims that this is our one and only exit option, you know, we, we do try to vet that. So, so the FTC's case against the um, data broker Cochavo was dismissed because the agency didn't sufficiently show that the location data sales were causing substantial harm. Um, but it also did note that an invasion of privacy can meet the standard of harm you know, under the FTC Act. Um, you know, is being able to show actual harm compared to theoretically possible examples, um, as the judge noted in the dismissal, you know, kind of a challenge that the FTC has been having in its privacy cases? Yeah, it's a really good question, and this is uh, one of our most important privacy cases right now uh, against Cochava, a data broker. Uh, we basically brought a case because Cochava was um, uh, basically making very sensitive geolocation information available um, online uh, to basically anybody who wanted to access it. And so this was data, you know, about whether people were going to, you know, addiction facilities, reproductive health services. Uh, and so we brought a case saying that, you know, this was an unfair practice. Um, as, uh, sorry, I didn't catch your name, but as Alfred asked, um, you know, uh, we recently got an opinion from the judge where uh, he said, you know, at this stage you didn't survive the motion to dismiss, but you have an opportunity to uh, file the complaint again. Um, and one of the most important things in that opinion was that he acknowledged, I think in the first time in a, a opinion, a federal court opinion, that those types of invasions of privacy in and of themselves can be an unfair practice rather than the invasion of privacy having to lead to say, you know, your account being hacked or some type of discrimination. So programmatically, that was a really important step forward in terms of privacy law in the United States. Um, you know, the question about injury and, and how you show it and, and at what point do you show it, I think is a really interesting one because uh, the law does allow us to show likelihood of injury rather than injury. Uh, and so especially in instances where the worst of the potential 
nightmare scenarios hasn't actually happened yet. Uh, we think it's important for us to be able to go in court and prevent that from happening. Um, and so that's why in this case in particular, we thought it was more important for us to act quickly and protect people from you know, having their data misused in, in harmful ways. Hi, uh, David Jones from Cybersecurity Dive. I was, uh, we've been covering a couple of very interesting cases that the FTC has gotten involved in regarding data security and how companies manage the security of their customers and uh, notification and, and, and governance and things like that. Uh, wanted to ask, how does the FTC view the future of kind of making sure that customers are brought into the loop in a prompt way when their data is uh, potentially breached or ransomed? And what kind of standards are you holding companies in terms of how they uh, notify federal agencies, manage that data? I'm sure you recall the recent case involving the former uh, chief security officer at Uber which uh, was uh, a very uh, you know, controversial uh, case in the security industry, but uh, kind of set a new precedent in a sense. Uh, can you talk about you know, where you're heading in that direction? Yeah, so data security is a really important part of our work, uh, especially as more and more of the economy digitizes and a lot of very sensitive information is online. We, we think it's really important that companies are investing in, in ensuring that data is secure. Um, one of the things that we've been doing recently is, is really making sure that in our enforcement actions and, and the relief that we mandate, the companies are making sure that they're following best practices in data security, right? I mean, this is a field that is rapidly changing. You know, best practices tomorrow might not be what they were a year ago. And so our orders have been requiring companies to, for example, you know, include uh, multi-factor authentication and really reflect the best practices of, of data security specialists. Uh, we've also been looking closely at, you know, where where can we be encouraging more companies to abide by the law in the first instance? Um, one of the things we've done is hold individual executives liable uh, when we thought that they were, you know, involved in or overseeing or sufficiently participating in the illegal practice. So one of the data security cases we brought was against Drizzly. Um, and there we did hold a high-level executive accountable because um, you know, several of these issues were brought to his attention and he didn't act. So, so that type of um, individual liability we think is also important uh, to make sure that companies are fully getting the message. And just a quick follow-up. Uh, right now, most of the enforcement historically has been on a state-by-state -state level where you have state AGs kind of enforcing and sometimes they group together to go after a particular company where consumers in different states are uh, impacted. Is there a need, in your view, for a federal uh, data privacy uh, legislation that would nationalize uh, data security in that regard? Yeah, look, I mean, I think if, if Congress passed strong federal privacy law, that would be a good thing uh, and make sure that all Americans have minimum privacy rights. Um, I think a lot of the work that states have been doing to make sure their own citizens are protected is really important. And so I would want to make sure that any federal privacy law is a floor rather than the ceiling. And if specific states want to go on and, and protect their citizens even more, that they're able to do so. Any other questions? Sam? Uh, Sam Sutton um, with Politico. Uh, there have been a lot of eye bankers and deal makers who said the agency's showing of its teeth, you know, a bit more in recent years has pushed them away from doing deals that, you know, you might not personally view as viable. Um, do you view that as a marker of success 
for the FTC? And, and if so, I mean, we're in New York. What's it like making that case to those iBankers and those deal makers? So look, as a law enforcer, one of your goals has to be deterrence, right? You want to prevent illegal practices from happening in the first place. Um, unfortunately, I think in you know recent decades, there had been a trend where deals were getting out of the boardroom that were facially anti-competitive. And if now we're at a stage where there are discussions happening in the boardroom that are preventing those deals from actually seeing the light of day, um, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think in illegal deals should not be proposed in the first instance. Um, you know, just to step back, in any given year, we get anywhere from you know 1,500 to, in, in very high volume years, 3,000 uh, merger filings. Uh, really, if you, if you look at the numbers, a uh, relatively small fraction of those even get a second look, an even smaller fraction are ultimately challenged. So um, there's still a lot of deal making that's happening. Um, I think if there's any chilling happening, again, of you know, the biggest company in a market buying his biggest competitor, uh, I, I think that, that that type of deterrence can be a positive. Hey there, uh, Frida Pauli, Chief Data Science Officer of Harvard. Um, so I agree with you that we do have existing laws on the books for many of these things. I do think that as a technologist who's built around employment law that was created in 1968, there are meaningful gaps that I think you know need closing. Um, so one of the questions I have is, you know, since the EU, for example, has sort of taken a lead um, in trying to create, you know, regulation around AI with the EU AI Act and whatnot, do you worry at all that, you know, taking the position that, hey, there are these existing laws, you know, they're fine for now, we might cede kind of prominence to, you know, other jurisdictions, which at the end of the day, whether I build my technology in New York uh, or somewhere else, I still have to comply with you know, GDPR and other laws coming out of the EU. So I'm just curious on your thoughts around that. Yeah, look, I think it's incredibly important for lawmakers to be thinking about what new laws might be necessary. Um, really, my point has been that, like, let's not, until we get those new laws, let's not pretend that no new current laws apply. Because I do think that some of the statements we hear suggest that there is this current regulatory vacuum. But I think you're absolutely right that we need to be thinking about, um, you know, what is the right framework for these, uh, for some of these new rules, what types of um, you know, requirements do we want to be imposing on what these companies need to be even vetting for before these things come out into the wild, right? I think one thing that I'm concerned about is whether it's the public and you know, under-resourced enforcement agencies, under-resourced civil service society, you know, agents, uh, groups, under-resourced academics that are going to have to do the cleanup when it's the companies that have the relevant information, they have the relevant resources to ensure some safety and cleanliness on the front end rather than allowing these tools out into the wild and then expecting everybody else to do the cleanup. So I think that's, that's what we need to be looking out for as well. Thank you. Um, Max Bodek with uh, Foundation for American Innovation. It's a DC think tank. Um, we've done a lot of work on boosting science and technical capacity at regulatory agencies, including the FTC. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the specific capacity improvements you'd like to see, um, like appropriations requests that would be really helpful for you guys, and yeah, just kind of how you see the landscape going forward, especially as fiscal austerity begins to kick in on like the right of center. Yeah, it's a really important question, and ensuring that the FTC has the necessary technological capacity has definitely been a top priority. Um, the FTC has had you know technologists at the agency for upward of a decade, but uh, we really thought there was an ability to an opportunity to scale there. So uh, a couple of months ago, we launched a new office of technology. We have a chief technology officer. Uh, they're high 
hiring. Uh, just within a, a week of, of putting out their uh, notices, they got somewhere around 500 uh, applications uh, from you know very off the charts qualified people. So we're really encouraged uh, and are bringing on you know data scientists, data engineers, AI specialists, uh, specialists in, in data security. Um, so that's definitely an area where we're building, but there's a lot more need. Um, we were lucky and we got a boost from Congress this past year. Uh, so we'll be able to hire 150 new people, uh, which, you know, when you're an agency of 1,200 is, is non-trivial. Uh, so we're really excited about that. But again, I think we're still a fraction of the size we need to be, given how big a job and how important a job Congress has given us. So uh, any support for, for more appropriations is definitely welcome. All right, we have time for one more question. Henry. Actually, I'm, I'm, what you got there? All right. We can do two if okay. that's helpful. All right, great. Hi, Sameep Shetty, not from a think tank, but from CNBC. Um, I'm more curious about your thoughts uh, and how you're viewing this world going forward, especially as data becomes the key cornerstone of future fights uh, as we step into this world of AI. I'm keen to know from a consumer and from a company's point of view, who has data ownership? Is it the platform that I submit my data to, or is it me as an individual that I that, that I have ownership of my data. Because as, as we are seeing the world unfold around us, all of the information that platforms have, all of the data that platforms have, are going to be fed continually into these algorithms and then spit out generative artificial intelligence. And give it a few more years, we might not know what the um, origin and genesis and thesis of this is. So I'm curious to see what how you are thinking through uh, these potential future problems and uh, what your mental makeup is there. Yeah, it's a good question, and you know, one that a lot of folks have been grappling with for some time, right? Because we've already seen for uh, the last you know, couple of decades all sorts of business models that are premised on monetizing personal data. Um, you're right that, that AI is gonna basically turbocharge that in terms of you know, scraping the entire web to be feeding your models and algorithms, I think, is already leading to questions from you know, creators in particular about what it's gonna look like for them. Uh, are they gonna get compensation for their content if it's being fed into these models? Um, I think there are a lot of really important questions there. Uh, you know, as of right now, we don't have some type of kind of personal property regime with, with that type of data. Um, I think we have seen some legislative proposals, trying to codify that sort of thing. Um, at the FTC, we're really focused on making sure that people have choice um, and they are fully aware of how companies are going to be using their data. Uh, some of the privacy enforcement actions that we brought recently have been in the context of health apps, uh, where, you know, especially post during the pandemic, we saw a proliferation of, of health apps, and some of them have been collecting personal data for the purpose of providing health services, but then turning around and quietly also selling that data or making it available for advertising uh, in ways that especially when you're talking about, you know, uh, counseling apps or, uh, you know, mental health data. I mean, this is really, really sensitive stuff. And so at the very least, we want to make sure that uh, users and consumers are not being deceived about how this data is being used. I think some of the more interesting property right questions that you're raising uh, is probably going to be figured out by Congress. All right, uh, I promise to get her out because you guys can always keep asking questions for like three more hours. So thank you so much for coming and thank for doing so this. We're really grateful. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Yeah, it was really good to see you.